Welcome to the Sleep Junkies podcast. My name's Jeff Mann. I'm the founder and editor of Sleep Junkies. And just in case you haven't been here before, at Sleep Junkies, we cover the whole conversation on sleep from the health and science aspects to the culture of sleep, sleep advocacy, the sleep industry. If there's an interesting subject and it's got anything to do with sleep, then we're up for talking about it. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to talk about the brain and what happens in the brain when we're sleeping and specifically about measuring the activity in the brain as we sleep. And our guest is someone I met down at the Somnex show in October in London. So I was walking around the show and there was this one stall and it had a poster and it had the words lucid dreaming on it. And I saw this stall, but I walked past it a few times. Um, the reason is there have been quite a few lucid dreaming projects, apps and bits of hardware that have popped up in the last few years that really, to be frank, have been a load of rubbish. And I thought, oh, that's another one of those guys just making some sort of fancy thing with lights that doesn't really do anything. But uh, but I did stop, and I ended up having a conversation with a guy who turned out to be Kurt, who's on the other end of the line today, and it was a super interesting conversation, very wide-ranging, talking about science and technology and commerce and the ethics of sleep and loads of stuff, and I thought, let's keep in touch uh, we spoke last week we ended up talking for three hours so i've edited it down to just over an hour and we're talking about lots of stuff uh we start talking about the zmax project then we talk about sleep architecture and sleep stages and we talk about what goes on in a sleep lab and then we talk a little bit about consumer technology and artificial intelligence um i I think you're going to enjoy it we're going in depth into some pretty technical issues but it's it's an interesting talk and um i'll leave it at that for the introduction if you're liking the sleep junkies podcast don't forget to subscribe and if you can leave us a review on itunes it really helps us to spread the word about sleep also you can check us on social media on instagram on twitter on our facebook group sleep junkies worldwide and of course on the website sleepjunkies.com so that's it for the introduction enjoy let's say hello hi kurt how are you doing i'm doing fine thank you gonna really try and pick your brains today before we get into the question and answer, I like to give guests the opportunity to what I call an elevator pitch. Now, I just mentioned um, you've created this platform called ZMAX. Now, in a succinct way, because it's a very um, sophisticated uh, platform that you've created, can you just give us a very brief overview what your platform does? So ZMAX is a sleep acquisition and analysis system. It consists of both hardware and software. The hardware is a comfortable headband that you put on your head before you go to sleep. And the software is a 
tool set for uh, displaying data that is acquired and for analyzing uh, the features of sleep. Some of the applications of ZMAX, for example, are in sleep research. Um, uh, sleep researchers uh, across Europe use ZMAX to capture data from their participants in their sleep studies. For example, the Stockholm University and Karolinska Institute, uh, Radboud University, uh, Netherlands Hersen Institute in Amsterdam with Dr. Van Sommeren, uh, Max Planck Institute of uh, Psychiatry, uh, University of Freiburg, uh, University of Essex, University of Leeds, and another application that comes to mind is Lucid Dreaming, ZMAX has stimulation capabilities. So for people that are interested in lucid dreaming, uh, ZMAX is the most uh, accurate EEG-based sleep cue delivery system that's available. It's also scriptable. There's another one is biofeedback and neurofeedback. So for example, ZMAX captures the, uh, the amount of oxygen in your blood and uh, your heart rate movement and the, the muscle tension in your face. So from these things, um, as you can see on our website as well, you can create uh, relaxation setups and biofeedback software. Okay, fantastic. So, so Kurt, can you tell us a bit about your journey into creating ZMAX and how you came up with the initial idea for the platform and how you developed um, ZMAX and, and where it is now? Well, ZMAX started out as a lucid dreaming project and uh, I had tried the Nova Dreamer. Uh, it was the first uh, lucid dreaming hardware but unfortunately, I lost that, and also it was quite uncomfortable on the face because it was an actual sleep mask. So I covered uh, your face, and with any facial twitch, it would then tickle or, or scratch and, and wake you up. So uh, I decided to make my own system and uh, that it would be based on EEG um, because, well, the, the, the way that you normally detect lucid dreaming is by looking at eye movements, and the Nova Dreamer was accomplishing that with an infrared sensor. But um, when I got halfway through, I realized that actually the determination of the sleep phase, which in my case, I thought I would just download some paper, which would explain to me what kind of algorithm I could use to look at however many seconds of data and figure out what sleep state the person was in. When I got there and I started downloading a bunch of papers from uh, the internet and uh, took months to replicate all of their algorithms, I realized these things don't work. And uh, about halfway through, I realized that the uh, challenge of determining whether a person is in the dream state or not was uh, something that wasn't really solved to the point where I could just download an algorithm and do it. So that started the actual project, which is basically by now, I would say 90% of the effort went into uh, uh, the data analysis uh, related to sleep data to determine the sleep structure from a sleep recording using the forehead EEG channels. Okay, so I wanna move on to the next part of the interview. And this is gonna be a bit of an explainer for the listeners, for anyone who's interested into the actual science of what goes on in the sleeping brain. So to start off with, can you just give us a brief overview of what EEG is? So as you said, EEG is a, a technique that we use to measure uh, what the brain is doing by looking at very coarse uh, type of electrical activity that can be measured uh, on the scalp. 
when you sleep, your brain undergoes several state transitions and it goes into some states which we were able to identify. And each state has some particular markers as to the electrical activity that it's producing. So we can look at the electrical activity uh, of the brain and figure out because we can see these features, that means that currently the brain of the sleeping person is in this or that particular stage. Well, let me put to you this way. The brain has many modules and they're all doing different things. And as they do something complex, like a cognitive task, they're all doing different things. So all of the impulses, all of the electrical impulses get mixed up. And the result is that you don't see very much. It's as if you were trying to detect the average color of your TV. You're not going to see an image. If it was all blurry, it would just turn to gray, right? What happens during sleep is that all the, pixel are, all the pixels are trying to do the same thing, which we think are cleaning up garbage uh, that got collected within the cells and uh, trying to uh, prune memories that are not getting used, transferring um, short-term memory to long-term memory, memory consolidation, all this kind of stuff. So as it's doing that, it's almost as if you had a TV where every pixel is trying to take on the same color. So once you measure that outside the scalp, where everything is blurred out, you can still see some things. Like you, you imagine a TV that's all blurry, but every pixel is trying to, to turn red and blue and red and blue. Then you can still see that activity. That's why sleep EEG is much more interesting than wake EEG because it's all blurred out. And the future for EEG, what we really expect is if, you're, if we're going to interface with the human brain, we need to get more resolution. How to do that is a whole different uh, you know, ballpark. And as far as the discussion goes, but uh, that's why during wake, you don't have very interesting EEG activity recorded by EEG. It's not that there's no interesting activity, it's just that we can't record it well, that's all. Great analogy uh, with, with the pixels. And, and let, me, it, let me tell it, you something else about that too, about the pixel analogy. So yeah. uh, when you read these manuals, like what we follow is the AASM manual for sleep scoring, which tells you if you see this thing, then it's this stage. And if you see this other feature, it's that other sleep stage. And routinely, throughout the transition from one state, state to the next, what you see is both occurring. And what I think is going on there is simply the brain is trying to synchronize because it's going to eventually end up in the same state. But uh, it's not a computer. You know, it's not like it's got a central controller that says, OK, now we switch to REM. So you, it's perfectly conceivable for one part of the brain to be in slow wave sleep and turning into REM sleep before the other part. So that's why sometimes you can see these features co-occurring because you might be catching data from different neuronal clusters that are in different sleep states. So essentially, your brain is not necessarily always all in the, in the same sleep state. Now, of course, if this superposition continues for very long, then there might be some underlying problem. And so this is the kind of stuff that if you go to a hospital and you have an EEG with 16 channels, and you're getting a human to analyze that you might discover and say, oh, look, this, this part of the brain is not even sleeping or whatever. I don't know about that because it's not even my field. But that would be one of the difference between something that you can take home like ZMAX that's got two channels and, for example, going to a hospital where they're going to wire you to death and you're going to have wires all over your body uh, because that, that's got more channels. But for most people, their brain just follows the same sleep structure. And so having two channels at the front is perfectly uh, sufficient. Again, fascinating. And I mean, this talk is a real education for me. 
So we often hear about brainwaves. Now, that, that's not strictly the best way of thinking about what EEG is measuring, because EEG is measuring electrical activity. Now, the great misconception that people have uh, is that there is such a thing as an alpha wave or a beta wave or a gamma wave. And if you go anywhere on the Internet, you will read pretty much the same stuff which is that alpha is between 10 and 11 hertz and beta is between 20 and 30 hertz or something like that. But um, actually, brain activity is not that deterministic. It's not like looking at some kind of a sensor reading from a camera or some microphone, uh, which is the whole complexity of creating uh, wearable technology. I mean, it's a whole difference between biological data and, uh, and digital data. And people tend to think of EEG in terms of digital data. So what frequency to what frequency? But when you start looking at it, uh, what I found out is that every person has a different range of uh, frequency. And these things often coexist. And then there are variations which are known but don't carry any meaning. Then there's variations that are known and they're, they're not normal but they're benign. And then there are other variations that indicate some pathology possibly and so it's a great big mess trying to make sense of all these features and figuring out what's going on so i guess the first thing to know would be the following if you put on an eeg and you're not sleeping you're not going to see almost anything out of it you might be lucky if you close your eyes to see some alpha waves these are 10 hertz oscillations we think and there's a lot of literature on it, most of which I don't even know. But we think that that's just the basic rhythm of neurons firing when they don't have any input and they're not doing something useful. So, for example, your visual cortex, the part of your brain that interprets images, that sits at the back of your head, which is not easy to see with ZMAX because most people have hair there. But for people who don't have hair, if you put ZMAX on the back, you wear it front back. Um, then immediately when you close your eyes, you would see uh, alpha waves. I mean, you're not seeing something interesting. You're seeing the lack of something interesting, all the enormous amount of processing that your brain does to get you to see things and translate images to symbols. That is not happening. And instead of that, you have some basic firing of the neurons, which most likely doesn't mean very much. You always need to take this with a grain of salt because we don't know exactly what's going on in there for the most part. Essentially, you're saying it looks like noise if you're not asleep. Well, yeah, but the, the way that neurons create noise is not what you would expect to be noise. Like in digital signals, noise means broadband frequency, means like shh, right? When the brain is noisy or it doesn't do anything useful, it seems like it's got this alpha rhythm, rhythm which is just doing tuck, 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 tuck with this rhythm of 10 hertz. But so that's why when you close your eyes and you're acquiring signal from the back of your head, which is not what you do uh, normally with ZMAX, usually acquire the front. But at the back, you can immediately see alpha waves. Now, some people have alpha waves from the front as well, like 87% of the people do. So that's the only thing you can see on EEG when you close your eyes. That's it. Sleep is the interesting part of, uh, of using EEG. Can you just briefly explain what a hypnogram is? We've used this term a couple of times. Uh, generally speaking, the, the hypnogram is this wave, this blocky wave that you might have seen. Uh, if you look hypnogram on Google, and you'll see a lot of them. And it's a graphical representation of the state of the brain throughout sleep. And uh, it's used by researchers as well. Uh, when you get a sleep report, for example, if you go to a hospital and do a sleep uh, a study, they give you a hypnogram together with a lot of other metrics. 
if you have a hypnogram, let's say the hypnogram is a square wave that is a sequence of different epochs. There's N1, N2, N3, wake, and REM. We have these five different states in which we break down sleep. If you have a sequence of these markers, for example, wake, 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 N1, N2, N3, then over the whole night that becomes a hypnogram. And if you look at that, you can already tell a lot about uh, what the brain and the body generally did during sleep. From this hypnogram, I'm just talking about if you were to take a, to take a sleep study uh, in a hospital, they would give you uh, a sleep report. You can Google sleep report and then it will show you samples of what it might look like. But at the top, they have dozens of numbers with codes like total sleep time, TST, uh, REM latency, and all of these things are drawn directly from the hypnogram. Great, thanks. Um, let's talk about the different sleep stages themselves, and we'll start off with light sleep or N1 sleep. Right, so if you, if you look at a hypnogram, you're going to see the first period is always W. It's always wake because you start from when you're awake. So that's uncontroversial. That's just when you're moving around trying to get to sleep. Perhaps, perhaps bathroom breaks. And also the, at the end of the night, once you wake up again, uh, that there's a big block of, of wake, W. Then the, after wake, the first thing that happens is that you go into light sleep or N1 sleep. And uh, N1 is... Uh, the, 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 is not associated with any visible features on, on the EEG channels other than perhaps if you're an alpha producer, the alpha waves disappear. And it has the peculiarity that if I wake you up during N1 sleep, most people will think I was not sleeping, but actually you were not fully conscious. You might have what are called hypnagogic uh, imagery, uh, which just means you're not really dreaming, but kind of I don't know, I guess drunk on those uh, chemicals that, that your brain is secreting to get you to, to fall asleep. So N1 is not considered to be very restful at all, but it's just an interstitial period between wake and actually doing restorative uh, uh, processing uh, in actual sleep. So that's N1. Okay, so with regards to our current understanding of N1, light sleep, what would you say is the role or the function of N1? I don't, I don't think N1 actually has a function, um, but I'm sure there are plenty of hypotheses out there. But what it looks to me, it's just simply a transition phase. Because imagine it would be uh, no, no biological um, process is one or zero, like digital, right? Imagine if you were to fall asleep, boom, and now you're making delta waves. It would be really strange. It's, we don't have other things that work like that, right? So you eat something, and then after you start digesting, everything is gradual in biology, right? So the transition from uh, from wake to sleep is this period called N1. I don't think that it's got a particular function. Um, if you if you were to get into evolutionary biology, you might say that you're trying to see if you can actually go to sleep, and if there's a predator that comes at you within five minutes, then you're still uh, awake enough to be able to respond quickly or something like that. But what it seems to me is that it's just a transition period where your level of arousal is still too high uh, to begin uh, creating the, the, the features that are characteristic of sleep, like the, the delta waves and stuff like that. Okay, great. So that's N1, light sleep. So what happens after this phase of N1? 
After N1, we have a phase that's called N2 sleep. And this is when you can begin to see two very distinctive features uh, of sleep, uh, EEG, which are K-complexes and sleep spindles. Uh, K-complexes are very easy to spot, um, triangular waves. And they just happen like bang, like that. They're not a continuous activity. Uh, they're spot-like, uh, instantaneous activity. And uh, they look very like a zigzag wave. Um, and then there's a, there's another feature of N2 sleep, which and it, which also occurs during N3, but it begins on N2, and it's the sleep spindles. And these are fast oscillations that occur generally around 12 hertz, but there's a lot of individual variability. And uh, they're supposed to say something about uh, the hippocampus communicating with your neocortex. Might have to do with uh, memory consolidation, but in particular with uh, with forgetting, because active forgetting is uh, an important part of um, of, uh, of of memory. Like in, even in AI, if you never do pruning, you don't have any negative component to learning. You just saturate the system. You can learn anything. I have one friend, in fact, and he he is the only EEG I've ever seen that does not have sleep spindles. And he has this very weird memory where he remembers the silliest details from two decades ago, and he can say the exact words. And, uh, you know, we haven't studied him or anything. Wow. So sleep spindles involved with learning, but not learning as, uh, <laughs> as we think of it, but in forgetting. Yeah, you know, the thing is, when I say these things, I'm telling you my current understanding and the research is, you know, every day there's new papers coming out. So there are people that research only sleep spindles. That's all they do for a living for 20 years. So I'm sure if they heard that statement from me, they could say, well, actually, that's not completely accurate. But let's to me, what they are, they're little scribbles that appear on the EEG. And if I can, if I can identify scribble versus non-scribble and mark that as N2, I've already segmented uh, N2, N3 from everything else. And so you see how there's, there's a very different angle on this from a data analytics point of view. And if you were to get the guy that studies only spindle and you told him, take a recording and tell me where the spindles are and write a software for it, he wouldn't be able to do that. So it's, it's very broad. It's very, very specialized. So I want get to it. make sure I don't make statements that are outside of my realm of expertise. Let's move on. N2. And then we hit... Deep sleep, slow wave sleep, N3. So we hit N3, and um, here I have to talk about my personal grievance with the division between N2 and N3 because it's one of the most unscientific things about sleep staging. So basically, the, the most notable, let's say, feature of sleep is that you have these delta waves, uh, also called slow waves. That's why they call it slow wave sleep, right? And people have decided for some reason that when you have more than a specific amount of uh, delta waves within one epoch, which remember is an arbitrary 30 second period, then that's going to qualify as N3. The way that, that my algorithm works internally with ZMAX, uh, I don't really have N2 N3. I produce them afterwards to make the researchers happy and hope for the best that it's close enough to what they expect. But it's a smooth continuum which is exactly what you see on the, on, the, on the electrical activity. In the electrical activity, there is a smooth continuum of increase in uh, slow wave production as you move from N2 to N3. If I want to be completely, uh, if I want to be more precise, let's say, there are some people and some nights 
in which throughout this continuous process, there is a point in which the production of delta waves increase all of a sudden. So in this continuous process, there's a bump that you can identify. So it's not to say that there's no state transition of some sort. But as far as I'm concerned, the, tr the this determination of N2 versus N3 is one of the most problematic. It's the one that changes a lot depending on who's scoring and how much attention they're paying. Two different human scorers on two different epochs, or if they redo the same scoring the next week, they will give a different uh, result there. One time they will say, yeah, it's not really exceeding. The other time they will say, yeah, I reached it. So you see how, how error-prone this process is. And so for this reason, I think of N2 and N3 is really the same uh, phase, but a phase in which there's a continuous increase in uh, slow wave activity. That's really interesting, uh, the, the fact that these states are not as we might perceive them, as uh, deterministic, as you say, a hard transition between N2 and N3. Um, so, again, what would you say about uh, the function of N3, deep sleep? Well, I think that is uh, that is something where you probably should ask a researcher. I'm not really, I mean, the functions, right? So it's being associated with all sorts of things, with memory consolidation, with repair of the body. Then there's the idea that there are some metabolic processes in the brain. So it's not just a computing device. It's not just a chip, right? Because it's biological. So those cells are the same stuff that's inside all the cells in your body. They got ribosomes, they got lysosomes, they produce junk. They need to get rid of the junk, which is a byproduct of the metabolism. So not all the brain is doing is cognitive. Some of the stuff might just be produced by the, uh, by the brain going in and, and, and getting rid of junk substances and, and breaking them down, which could be something that doesn't really like to take place uh, at the same time as you're actually using those neurons. So, but there's new, there's new papers coming out trying to make sense of what exactly the brain is doing depending on the electrical activity. So like we used to think that dreaming only happens in REM sleep. And now there are people saying that actually you can have dreams also occur during slow wave sleep. Okay, that's a nice segue into the next stage of sleep, REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Yeah, so REM, REM is actually for me is the most important phase because it has a phase that's actionable in, in some way. Because as you remember, so this started as a lucid dreaming project. And so very, very quickly, lucid dreaming is a state of consciousness in which your brain is asleep, but you can, uh, you can, uh, you can still be conscious within the dream, except you don't have any inputs, so the, the brain is generating everything that you feel and see. And uh, lucid dreaming is a very unstable, very fragile state of consciousness in which you're able to remember or, or notice that you're in a dream while you're in a dream. And the problem there is that because your brain is basically already kind of fully working at that point, uh, it doesn't really like to stay asleep. So uh, the, the, one of the big challenges in lucid dreaming is not so much the lucid dream, but to uh, avoid waking up because people get excited. So anyway, the idea is that you wait until REM sleep, and uh, the way you do that is by looking at eye movements. So the, the, the one part of the ZMAX system that's working the best that I'm really, really satisfied about is the REM detection, which works in real time unlike the hypnogram production, which, uh, which is, uh, works offline. You record the, the night, and then after it produces 
the hypnogram, but the REM detection is done live. And it's done by looking at the peculiar features of, of REM sleep, which are eye movements. Um, now, I don't know how much in detail I want me to go in, into it, but the problem is that actually sleep has a lot of things that happen that look like eye movements. So getting the real eye movements versus the fake eye movement, that's where all the difficulty is in. But basically in REM sleep, you're moving your, your real body eyes in the same way that you're moving your dream eyes. And uh, so you can look at eye movements, which produce a very strong electrical oscillation, unlike the EEG, and say, oh, okay, I see now the guy's moving the eyes and he doesn't seem to be awake and there's no movement and this and that. So that's, that's the REM sleep phase. Okay, and what about the characteristics of REM when you're looking at the EEG? So in REM sleep, you don't have uh, alpha, you don't have spindles, you don't have K-complexes, and you don't have slow wave sleep. You don't have slow waves or delta waves. All you have is pretty flat electrical activity uh, with some theta activity, which anyways is present all the way throughout the recording. But it's, uh, it, it's very visible in REM because there's almost nothing else. And you have eye movements. The eye movement activity is very, very evident on the EEG signal, um, even though it's captured on the forehead. If you go and do this in a lab with all the electrodes, what they do is they put some electrodes on your forehead and some of them near your eye. And the ones near the eyes, they call it EOG uh, for uh, electro-oculography. Uh, but the um, thing is, it, it's all superimposed. See? So even the EOG channels get a little bit of EEG. And the EEG certainly gets a whole lot of EOG. So what I do with ZMAX is I'm able to use software to separate the two and to identify the EOGs that are superimposed on the EEGs. And by doing that, I can get away with just having a simple headband without having extra wires or telling you to connect things near your eyes. So basically, all you see is, uh, is theta activity with uh, eye movements. You also see some other things. Remember, ZMAX is multi-sensor. So the difference between eye, eye movements in REM and eye movements in wake, for example, is that during REM, you're not moving around. Um, the eye movements also are very rounded at the tips compared to eye movements that you can see during REM. That's probably because uh, the paralysis of the body that happens throughout uh, REM sleep is not complete. So it doesn't affect the eyes, but it's also not zero at the eyes. So the eye movements in, in sleep are more subdued than, than during wake. And uh, you also see some uh, bursts of EMG activity, which is uh, electromyography. It's just uh, facial twitches. You sometimes have small twitches. Like even if you look at a pet while, while they're sleeping, you sometimes see they have small movements of the paws or, or, the, or the face. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So for anyone who's unaware, we've just described these different states, these different stages of sleep. And... During the night, we will cycle through these in the order that we've just described them. And um, I, I believe it's around 90 minutes for the average length of a sleep cycle. And we'll get five or six different sleep cycles during the night. So this other idea that you have all of these sleep cycles and there are six sleep cycles throughout the night or five sleep cycles. So first of all, it depends how long you sleep. The more you sleep, you're going to have more cycles, clearly. Second thing, it depends how well you sleep, because if you have an awakening, the cycle is interrupted and it's got to begin again. And so what I often see in a recording is that it's impossible to determine how many cycles there were. 
simply because there's no clear way to determine what is a cycle. So let's say you go N1, N2, N3, then you wake up, then you go back N1, N2, N3. How long is that? I don't know. It might be two-thirds of the size of the regular sleep cycle. And then you have a full one later. Do you call it one? Do you call it two-thirds? It's not clear. So we just call a cycle. If you were not disrupted in your sleep, uh, then this sequence of going from N1 to N3 and then back to N1 and REM, we'd call that a cycle. In practice, though, it's a lot harder than, uh, than reading stuff on the in Internet might have you believe. Uh, because, uh, yeah, there's disturbances and the brain jumps back and forth. It's also indicative of some types of disorders. If you cannot stay in slow-wave sleep, like you might see somebody that goes in one and two and three and then in two and then three and then two and then one, and and it, you can see that it's not stable. So that's a case in which you should actually go and visit a sleep lab and try to figure out what's going on, but it's something that would be revealed easily with ZMAX if you try for a night. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Kurt. That leads nicely onto what I want to talk about next. So we've discussed the different sleep stages and their characteristics. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about actually what happens if you were to book yourself in for a sleep study, if you went to a sleep lab or a sleep clinic and you were to undergo a full clinical grade sleep study, um, also known as a PSG, polysomnogram. And also talk a little bit about the advantages of going to a sleep clinic, but also some of the, the disadvantages to trying to monitor sleep in those conditions. Right. Well, the sleep lab test is a lot more comprehensive because it has all of these channels. Not only does it have sometimes 16, sometimes even as high as 256 which means your head is literally covered by electrodes. You look like some Borg queen type creature. But as, as you can imagine, it's very inconvenient. Uh, it's not just that. Then you get the pulse oximeter on the finger. So you get stuff tied to your fingertip with tape. And you've got uh, stuff across your chest, um, uh, which measures the respiratory effort. And then you've got a thing stuck in your nose as well called the cannula that measures your breathing. As you can imagine, this is very, very accurate in how it measures things. The problem with, with a test in the sleep lab is that you're A, sleeping in an unfamiliar environment, and B, you've got all of these contraptions hooked to your body. So what are you really measuring? You're measuring a very disturbed sleep. Now, because this is recognized, what they do is usually, like in a study, they will have three nights. And the first one, they call it the habituation night. But I think it's a little bit preposterous that you can habituate to sleeping like that in a day with those kinds of things. Well, instinctively, it makes sense. Uh, new environments, we're not going to sleep as soundly and as restful as we are in our bed. And I believe there's plenty of research to back this up too. Well, there's this tactile sensation of stuff adhering to your body, which is, is very unfamiliar. Then it restricts your ability to turn around because you can feel there's something. So <clears throat> with ZMAX, you only have two electrodes uh, and you still have a lot of the other sensors like the movement sensor. You have uh, the heart rate instead of using a, a, a finger sensor, it's detecting it directly from your forehead. Um, there is a breathing sensor that's external, and you can use it if you want to capture your SpO2 level and your breathing. And yes, that also needs to be uh, stuck in the nose as well, but it's optional. 
but for determining the sleep structure that's that's not uh you know we have to determine because sleep studies they do them for analyzing breathing problems and and sleeping problems that have other causes right so if you're talking about breathing it's it's, it's a very different story but uh, basically, with Zmax, the, the reason you can you can uh, stage sleep even with only two channels is that the brain is not really usually doing different things in different locations at different times. Like there might be a discrepancy of at most thirty seconds for when that particular piece of the brain enters a specific stage, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the only challenge is that when you only have two electrodes, you got to make sure they don't fall off. So. When people try it normally the first time, they don't understand how to put on the headband. They have to try it a couple of times. Then I give them a few tips. Now I've got a video on YouTube that shows them how exactly to put it on. And then once they resolve that problem, it's basically as good as having uh, 16 electrodes for healthy subjects. And we have to underscore that the ZMAX is a tool for healthy subjects to determine the sleep structure. And of course, if you're not a healthy subject, but you didn't know, you might find out this way. But it's uh, it's not a system that can analyze the patterns of people that have very abnormal uh, brain physiology or electroencephalography during sleep. So I guess these two distinctions are important between studying sleep structure versus study breathing is one. And then studying a healthy subject versus studying somebody that has some recognized pathology is another, is another difference. The main benefit with ZMAX is that it's simple. You don't need to scrub the skin. You don't need to apply gel or glue to your face. Uh, you don't need to go to a sleep lab. Uh, you don't need to plan when you're going to bed. Like if somebody tells me, okay, now we're ready, go to bed. There's no way I can go to sleep, right? So some people can't even do the PSG because they just won't fall asleep. This, you just put it on and then you go to sleep whenever you feel like it. Uh, it doesn't require preparation. And uh, it's, uh, it's still something that you need to put on the head. So it's not as comfortable as having nothing at all. It's not as comf comfortable as, as a, a, like a wristband or something. But the, the compromise between how much accuracy you get in the EEG data and the sleep structure versus how little discomfort it actually gives you, because just one piece, it doesn't have all the wires. In fact, you know, the researchers ask me all the time, why don't you add an EMG wire? Why don't you add EOG wire? I'm like, no, I, I'm not going to add anything. Because if I start adding stuff, we get what you already have, <laughs> and then uh, and then nobody wants to put it on anymore. So it's got that benefit that it's easy to put on, and you're measuring your actual sleep in your home. Okay, so I wanted to ask the question. Your product is very much uh, an EEG product, but we see a lot of other products there that are dedicated towards uh, this idea of measuring or, or quantifying sleep. So, so what are your views on products and services that are, are trying to do this without using EEG? Uh, it's hopeless. Like if it was for me, if I had an actual need to figure out what's going on with my sleep, and the only option was to go to a sleep lab or buy a wristband or something like that on an app, I would go to the sleep lab. I mean, I've looked in very close detail at hundreds and hundreds of recordings. And remember, ZMAX is multi-sensor. So what that means is that I don't just have the EEG. Right below the EEG on each individual screen, I have the accelerometer track, which shows me the movement. And then I have the uh, PPG, which is an optical way of measuring the heartbeat. So I have the heart rate below that as well. And 
while on the aggregate if you were to take hundreds of these there's yes it's true that there's more heart rate variability during REM sleep than not and yes it's true you have a higher heart rate during wake I would never be able to just use movement and heart rate to create a hypnogram for a single person and then show it to them in the morning and tell them it's right. That, that's just not doable in my view. It's not always the case that the, that the client is going to make a purchasing decision based on accuracy. That's a, sometimes it's a purchasing decision that it's based on novelty and some people are early adopters, they like technology and they want something that's technological, but it's also effortless to use. Yes. So a wristband doesn't require you to, to do anything. Something you put on your head is already a little bit more of a commitment. You yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people get into sleep technology because they're early adopters and because they want to find out about their sleep. But as you say, the problem is um, there's no way to validate the data from some of these new, more advanced sleep wearables that are coming out. Well, I think the problem is that um, the average consumer does not know how to interpret raw data, so they're not requiring the raw data. And because they don't require it, it's not there. And because it's not there, you can claim just absolutely anything. That's, that's it in a nutshell. You know, having something peer-reviewed, I don't know what to say. There's only one, there's one test. There's only one test if something works or not. That's not a study made on somebody else with data that you couldn't see. It is, you take it, go to bed, wear it, get the raw data in the morning, check that the determination of the sleep phases uh, corresponds to what you see in the EEG. And by the way, check if the EEG has any features on it or if it's just noise or what it is. If you don't do that, you just don't know. Just to wrap. So what would you say about um uh, about things like Moore's law, about computing power, about uh, miniaturization, and about cramming more and more technology into uh, these new gadgets that are coming up, and also layering machine learning and predictive analytics. Would you say that there's ever going to be a situation where we'll be able to monitor sleep without monitoring the sleeping brain? Um, the thing with AI, it's only able to recover patterns that were captured, okay? So take the human visual cortex. That's the best part of our brain. And the brain is the most intelligent part of the universe. So if you look at the visual cortex, because there are some things in humans that really are not very nice. Like you breathe, talk, and eat from the same hole. That's not very intelligent design. But there are some things that are really, really optimized, like the visual cortex. And I think that's because we're monkeys. We, we needed to have really good 3D vision to navigate the trees and so on and so forth. But take that as an example. You cannot look at a picture with just static and make things out of it because there's no signal in the image. So the problem with the buzzwords and with the AI is that AI has been able to do a lot that we previously thought it cannot do like winning at Go, winning at chess, self-driving cars. But the problem with the data still remains. And there's still the old saying, what is it? Garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't have the thing that you're trying to detect in the data, there's no amount of intelligence, not even a futuristic superintelligent, uh, superintelligence the size of a planet can go in and give you data that's just not there. So you'll never get away from the need to, to acquire the signal before you go and process it. Um, so I think we're talking about accelerometer data and uh, and heart rate data, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, if there's something new that we don't know, 
like for example there's a fibonacci series encoded in uh, every uh, you know wake to n1 transition in the heart rate that we never really figured out because we're too dumb then okay maybe in that case but you know because it's biological signal i doubt that there's like you know some some kind of slam dunk thing that we can grab that we previously missed okay so to try and summarize what you're saying is the sleep lab test is a very comprehensive one and indeed it's the only way to do thorough medical diagnostic testing for sleep disorders however there are lots of drawbacks uh, you need loads of equipment you're sleeping in an unfamiliar environment which means the sleep that's recorded isn't necessarily how you're sleeping at home um, you need trained professionals to operate the equipment so you need to attach lots of sensors to the body however the other option is sleep tracking consumer technology which you're saying doesn't match up in terms of accuracy so with zmax you've tried to bridge this gap uh, and bring clinical grade eeg data into a wearable that you can use at home so so that sounds like a massive challenge so can you explain some of these challenges that uh you've faced in undertaking this uh, this project well with the home device it really depends what kind of home device you're designing um, I started from the assumption that <clears throat> because I'm very sensitive to anything that happens during sleep including what I have on my head so if it's too big I'm not even gonna wear it then if I don't wear it, who's gonna wear it I mean it, it has to be comfortable now to be comfortable one of the things that I discovered is that size matters a lot because you sometimes sleep on your side and sometimes for example i sleep on my side with my face against the mattress or the pillow and so the size of the thing if, it, if it's going to limit the movements and limit the sleeping positions that you can assume or throughout the night you're moving around and you hear this thing or you you, you feel it uh, pressing against your head that's not good so the width uh, is uh, the most important dimension and the thickness as well. I made it so that my nose is going to bump against things before the device bumps against things. Um, when you're trying to make it this small, all the engineering challenges related to just any electronic device, especially analog circuitry, become a million times more difficult. For example, the battery. So because it's small and most of the space in any consumer device is occupied by the battery uh, and the battery itself is a maximum capacity is limited by the power density and we just you know the technology that we have today is we have these lithium polymer batteries they have the highest energy density other than using nuclear which would probably not <laughs> not be very nice but I don't think many people would want to go for that solution. No, because then you would have a fluorescent forehead in the morning <laughs> or keep you up. But the energy density limit is a, is a real problem. And there's so many people now, so much well-funded research in trying to make batteries with higher density because they're really being the limit of the miniaturization of devices. And so in, in the case of ZMAX, it's the same way. And uh, when you have the battery occupying most of the space, but still it's that small, so the battery doesn't have much juice to operate on. And so what can you do? Well, for example, you can not transmit data wirelessly, which is what a lot of uh, gadgets do. Uh, but 
the problem is this, that they try to do processing on a single chip on the device because processing is cheap in energy terms. But for example, radio transmission is quite expensive. So ZMAX, I wanted it to be a real-time system because I also wanted it to be a lucid dreaming device. So it has to be able to communicate with the PC, which by the way is wonderful because now you're not limited by the power of the small microcontrollers on the device as to what kind of processing you can do. Uh, you can you can you can have your whole PC do the processing and just use the the uh, ZMAX as a data collection tool and, and a stimulator. If you, if your PC is not enough, you can connect it to the cloud. It's not a problem. So that's very convenient. But when the battery is so small, uh, for example, I couldn't use Bluetooth because Bluetooth is too energy intensive. And some people who are savvy, they ask, what about low energy Bluetooth? Yeah, they really <laughs> messed it up too, because then what they did is they imposed a, max, uh, a maximum uh, data uh, bandwidth. So you have the normal Bluetooth, which is uh, unbearably energy intensive, and the battery wouldn't even last the whole night. Then you have the Bluetooth low energy thing, which uh, limits the data rate, and so I wouldn't be able to stream the raw data. So in the end, I had to make my own uh, radio circuitry and my own radio protocol and my own radio everything, which is, it's like developing a new Bluetooth from scratch, but I had to do it. And there's another problem with the radio too, that is, uh, which is specific to sleep. And that is that when you're using a wireless mouse or a wireless remote or anything, you can point it towards the receiver, right? But when you're sleeping, you can't tell the person, hey, sleep oriented towards the receiver. They're not gonna do that. They might sleep facing left or facing right. The receiver is usually the PC, which is sitting on a horizontal plane on one side of the person. So now if they're facing towards the computer, perfect signal. Facing away, now you got a problem. It's not only facing away, it's bouncing against the wall, which creates a very quick refraction. So the signal is transmitted twice uh, with a, some very small interval, which kills the signal. And on, uh, and on the other side, you have the head, which is mostly water, which is a very good way of insulating against uh, wireless frequencies, water. And so it's the worst possible case for data transmission is a head-worn device. So the cha technical challenge is to get something that would transmit signal reliably from the bed, regardless of the position. Um, and with that little battery that I have in it, you know, just because of the size, if, if I could make it as big as a brick, all of this would not have been a problem. Just use a big battery, use Bluetooth. And I can go into all of the different key parts of the system and it's just the same thing, that making it small uh, creates engineering difficulties. So that that's just one small aspect which you've described in a sort of nightmarish challenge <laughs> yeah. in itself, getting the wireless working. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the hub of it, the crux of it, is actually measuring the electrical well, activity. Well, you, you might think that actually that's because that's the main feature, right? But actually measuring EEG um, itself is not that hard. Like it's a, it's a decade-old technology. The, when it becomes hard is when you have to do it so small and when you have to do it in a way that doesn't have the cables. So making it small means I cannot buy an EEG amplifier. I have to create it from scratch. So made out of individual amplifiers and, and little resistors. And there's like 20, 30 components just to build the EEG. But at least they're small enough and they can be positioned well enough that, um, that I can make it small enough. 
So we we talked before that you you had to go through different types of compounds for the contacts and the adhesives as well. So there's a whole process yeah, yeah, yeah. Exploring, exploring what worked best right, in your right, right. sleep. Well, well, um, there's there are a bunch of materials today that are able to capture signal, but not well enough so that then you can make sense of it, like uh, conductive uh, textiles which all of the gizmos that you can buy online, uh, they work based on conductive textile because it looks cool. It looks uh, like there's nothing to replace. And they call them dry electrodes. And uh, unfortunately, they're very bad for signal acquisition. Uh, there are gadgets on the market that are so naive, they just have metallic surfaces that directly come in contact with the skin. Other ones using conductive rubber. So I spent six months doing only that, just researching the... Uh, electrode material you got dozens and dozens of different uh, conductive textiles from the ones that are using for emi insulation which is what they're all used for otherwise they wouldn't be in the market to custom making uh, gold ones um, to the ones that they use in uh, nuclear plants for insulation against radiation like well i had a booklet sent by a company with like 30 different types i still have the pictures and then the conductive rubber that wasn't good enough so there was a company that made uh, aerospace applications, and so they had this other conductive rubber, which wasn't stretchy at all. So for that was bad, but uh, it had a very, very high silver component to be more conductive. So tried that as well, uh, but they were all very, very bad until finally uh, trying different types of gels. I settled for a, for a gel electrode, and this is the only one that gives me a signal that's good enough to work. Now, this is the deciding factor. See, this is the deciding point where if you were a big company and you've got 40 million bucks invested in you and you've got a board of directors and people wanting their ROI, I couldn't tell them, you know, we're going to use the gel electrodes because the signal is nice. Because then they're going to say, no, well, how many people are going to buy it then? We want something that looks cool. So we put it on Kickstarter and all of these people are going to get it because it looks cool. And then it's, you know, 179, so it's too cheap to return it. You see how the incentives here are different, and that's that's why I was I was able to make it. Okay, so we've we've got uh, getting the wireless to work. We've got getting the sensors to work. Um, how about the on the software side of things? Um, as you said, sometimes you're kind of just staring into the matrix, and it's, it's hard to yeah, tell. Yeah, but you're staring into an incomprehensible mess of a matrix contaminated by sweat, uh, jaw artifacts, blinking artifacts, movement artifacts, electrodes coming off artifacts, uh, some stuff we were never able to eventually identify yet. Um, there you go. So without peeling open your brain and going into infinite detail. Into I still that, have some you, mysteries, just... you know, sometimes I send screenshots to, to the researchers I'm working with. And I'm like, dude, what is this? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Um, just, just describe to us some, of some of those sort of challenges where you, you're looking at, just looks like noise and you said there's structure in that noise, but you've got to extract a signal within that noise. So when I, when I got done with the hardware, I thought, okay, I'm done. Now I just do the sleep staging and finally I get to market. This was five years ago. And then in those five years, I actually had to develop, uh, I mean, it might sound arrogant if I say I had to develop the science to write the software, but that's pretty much what it is simply because there's no, okay, I'm not going to make claim. I'm going to tell, uh, let's state facts. If you go to a sleep center, a sleep lab, where sleep scientists are analyzing sleep, and you ask them, how do you translate the recording you have in a hypnogram? They pay somebody to do it. How much do they pay? $2, $5, $10? No, sometimes it's $100. 
So it's not a cheap process. Imagine a study with hundreds of participants, that's tens of thousands of dollars paid to these people. So there is a specific job, the sleep technician, which their job is to put the electrodes on the patient and to give you the hypnogram. They look at the data and they, and they give you the hypnogram. This means that there's no algorithm on the market which reliable, reliably you can pay and you can feed it into a computer and it can tell you this is this stage, this is that stage, this is that stage. There are some companies that claim to do it and they charge you just as much as the technician. And I was able to dig deep enough to figure out that actually it's not fully automatic. There's a guy there uh, and then the algorithm does half of it and the guy does the other half. That's why it's still expensive. So what you're talking about is taking raw data as such, whether it's from ZMAX or from yes, any, any other, other PSG system. Yeah. Exactly. That conversion is a very, very nasty data analysis problem. And as far as I can still see up to this day, um, not only has it not been solved, but people are looking the wrong way and making the wrong assumptions. So they're not going to solve it anytime soon. No matter how much AI they throw at the problem, I can give you the buzzwords and go into excruciating detail, but I won't. So I really went in really deep into trying to make this transition because the raw data doesn't do any, any good. What you want to see is the stages, right? So challenges related to that, I think the number one challenge is the variability between people, which even in the scientific literature, nobody's discussing as far as I can see. When you read these things very naively on the internet, say, okay, alpha is 10 hertz and beta is, 10, is 20 hertz and whatever. And that's just nonsense. It, it's, not, it's not a digital signal. Um, and there are really hard cases. Like, for example, the sleep spindle is supposed to be a 12 hertz and the alpha is a 10 hertz. And that gives you a really nice, clean way of segmenting wake from slow wave sleep. However, many people have alpha and spindles that are partly or fully overlapped. And when you get those things and you feed that kind of patient's data into some of these algorithms uh, that are used by, I don't know, the Zio, for example, used to use something like this, a naive type of bandpass filtering, where they would just look at the magnitude of the activity in this frequency band versus that other frequency band and then make a comparison and a determination based on that. That, uh, that yields not just lack of accuracy, but a catastrophe as in your whole slow wave sleep became awake. So the variability, A, and the overlap of the frequency creates a need for going into the signal and first of all, figuring out what type of brain is this. If you don't do this first, then there's no way you can score. I mean, you're gonna get a nice result in 20% of the people, so-so in the other 30%, and then for 50% it's gonna be a disaster. And this is why companies don't normally show you the raw data. Because if they did, you would realize half of the people, it's just a disaster and it's spouting nonsense. And so to get that to work reliably on 99% of the people meant that I had to find a way to determine from the data, first of all, what is really alpha and where is it? And where is the spindles and where are they? And wh where's the theta and which ones are the eye movements? And it's like a puzzle. So it, uh, it, it was tough to say the least. Okay, so it's very clear that it's a big puzzle. It's a huge, complex problem trying to decipher what's going on in the brain while we're asleep. So can we go back to a topic we touched on a bit earlier? And these buzzwords we hear all the time, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So how did that fit into the design and the development of ZMAX? 
Well, a lot of people that are using AI to, to do stuff, um, they have huge data sets. Like, for example, the Vision data set for self-driving cars is huge. And because AI is still pretty stupid, it might seem smart, but the reason it seems smart is because it's got one superhuman faculty, and that is to use a lot, a lot, a lot of sensory data. So it's not really a brain yet. What it is, it's like a first layer of your visual cortex in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of intelligence. It's really still very stupid. It can do fantastic things because it turns out that if you have even a primitive sensing layer, but you give it an unbelievable amount of data, like think of all the images on Google Images. And then if you search for a box, it will actually return you the image of a box. But they have a database that's so big and the, that is also marked because they have the keywords. And that is maybe not perfect marking, but then there's actually perfect marking. There's data sets of millions of images that you can bootstrap from. With sleep, you might have a lot of recordings and they might have a division into epochs, but they're not annotated, meaning that no one has a data set of one million sleep recordings where every sleep spindle is marked beginning to end. Every sweat artifact is marked beginning to end. We don't have that. So they're applying the same stuff that works on enormous data sets and trying to apply it on very, very limited data sets that are not even annotated. I don't know how in-depth you want me to go with this, but I just had a discussion with somebody who raised his hand while I was giving a speech, and I was saying the AI on sleep still doesn't work. And he said, oh, I did my PhD thesis uh, using convolutional neural networks, which are right now, you know, they're super hot topics, CNNs. And, uh, and then he said, okay, no problem. I replicated his code because he's got it on GitHub and I ran my recordings through it. And just like I told him, all it yielded is a disaster. And it's not to diss the guy, he's a very smart guy, I appreciate what he's doing. I think it's useful to do that. But then when we looked at it, we found out the cause. And the cause is that they're still looking at their classifiers uh, and they're looking at each epoch individually. So they don't know the sleep structure. They don't know what the sleep structure is. So an alpha at 12 hertz and a spindle at 12 hertz, they're going to look like the same thing to it. So, of course, it's going to get confused. Imagine if I tell you categorize men and women, but now I start putting women's faces on men. <laughs> it's going to throw you off, right? So um, it's uh, it just being blind as to what the algorithm is doing is is a problem with AI, right? When you When you use most of these pattern recognizers, one of the problems is you don't know what it's doing. Um, because you train the neural net and then and there's, there's other research going on to trying to do the reverse process. So if we don't know what's going on, how do we go about training a neural network to figure out what's going on in the EEG? Well, you, you, you can train it on the features and then you can train it theoretically it can be done you just need much much better better data sets and you need a lot of them because the, the the recognizer in ai doesn't need to know what it's looking at all it's doing is looking at uh features are represented as uh partitions in a very high dimensional space like points and if you can just figure out what points belongs to where it's done. The question is, how can you how can you teach it where they are? And the good things about AI is that it can learn implicitly from examples. That is, you don't need to you don't need to create an algorithm for it to say, okay, now this is what the spindle looks like. I mean, it gets really technical, but um, I think it will be done eventually. It's just it's not there yet. And to get it to work that way, you, it still requires the same amount of work or maybe worse 
but it's much more boring work where you would have to annotate millions of records. So, and who knows, you know, research is going fast. Maybe tomorrow we get an algorithm that does everything I'm saying cannot be done. But my question is, is the data in there? Because I'm sure one thing, if you didn't capture the data, then no matter what AI you use, it's not going to be able to create it out of thin air to match your expectations. There are huge, massive data sets out there. I know I talk to CEOs of big companies that have got millions, tens of millions of nights of data, sleep data. But as you say, it's, it's unannotated. So right. it's, it's like having, uh, I don't know, millions of pictures, but, but there's nothing written on it. So yeah, I mean, at some level, you might be able to discover relationships. I think there's something, I mean, it gets into a much more subtle conversation if you can do automatic extraction of things that are similar. But the point is you also want to break that down into epochs. And the epochs, remember, are a convention. They're kind of artificial. So if you let the AI figure out what goes with what, it might come up with something that looks completely different from sleep staging, you see. But it might be more interesting and more accurate. So we should use that if it does, if it does do that. Awesome. Uh, well, I could carry on that conversation longer but uh, we have to move on um yes so kurt i just um just briefly specific applications about something like zmax i mean we've talked about it originally came from this idea of lucid dreaming can you talk about you know the the broad range of applications the on the broadest level for, for consumers that are not sleep technicians or sleep researchers, one of the coolest thing, uh, things that you can do with ZMAX is lucid dreaming. I guarantee you that the other things that they're selling for cheap on eBay don't work. Uh, and uh, they're not scriptable. ZMAX is verifiably detecting REM sleep. It's, it's used by lucid dreaming researchers because it's able to actually trigger cues during REM sleep and only REM sleep. And it can show you exactly the stimulation points in the morning. And you can script it using JavaScript. You can decide, okay, if we're in a REM epoch, then play, play me back the sound or do this color stimulation or do whatever you need to do in your lucid dreaming experiment or protocol. So you can use it for that. That's the most, uh, I would say, most readily packaged thing that you can just buy and get an immediate benefit. Then if you want to learn more about sleep, it's an amazing educational tool because you know, for F, you, you get a blood pressure meter, you can get at the, at the supermarket nowadays, a scale for your weight in a mirror to see what you look like. Sleep is, is a very important biological function for which people aren't really able to go out and buy something that works like a scale. It tells me, okay, show it to me, what happened. And, uh, and sometimes you can discover very interesting things out of this. Like I remember one of the, the, the most famous of the researchers that, I that I'm working with, that he, was, he started to use ZMAX uh, as an early adopter two years ago while it was still in development. But we put it on him and we discovered that he has snoring and sleep apnea. He didn't know. And he's a sleep researcher, right? And I was able to show him, look, here, breathing interruption, boom, 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 here, desaturation going down to 87, causes a, a position change, and it disrupts the sleep. So now we're going to do experiments for, for him. And what we're going to experiment on is the following, since it's also a stimulation tool, right? So we're going to take this, uh, since we, uh, he's the only confirmed sleep apnea patient that I know of, uh, and so we're going to do a real-time sleep apnea detection. And when he stops breathing, there's a delay of about 15 seconds between stopping breathing and the blood oxygen going down to dangerous levels, which then causes a sensation of choking and causes him to change position or, or wake up. So we're going to detect the interruption in breathing and give a, vi a vibratory stimulation immediately. 
so that he's able to turn around or, or anyway come back to a less deep sleep stage without waking up and without having to have the apnea. We're going to experiment how that works. So you see that on the whole is a platform where you can try different things. Uh, it has uh, a usefulness that perhaps uh, goes a little bit beyond just uh, capturing data. Um, another completely different vertical is biofeedback. Neurofeedback and generally biofeedback is the process by which you take some data that you acquire from the body and turn that into something that you can either see or hear generally. And um, so, for example, you can get a measure of your movement and play sound based on your movement, or you can do it with the breathing or with your brain activity. And because ZMAX streams all of these uh, data channels in real time with very low latency, you're able to feed them into some software that can translate these things into sounds. And what that allows you to do is learn to control your heart rate, for example, your respiration, the amount of facial tension that you ideally you want to reduce uh, or to develop the ability to be perfectly still. This is interesting for people that are trying either to meditate or to learn relaxation for uh, insomnia and generally being able to, to get to sleep quickly. Yeah. And uh, sleep apnea briefly. Can you can you explain um, what you're working on now? I know you published some videos about uh, some new features recently. So basically, people, some people stop breathing while they're sleeping, and in some people, it's really dangerous because they're just going to suffocate. And so, people that have this problem, they already know about it. They know everything about sleep labs, and they have a CPAP machine at home. But and I, I don't think I can add anything to that conversation because that's really, you know, you need machinery to help you breathe. Um, there's, however, many more people than those that have that symptoms, but not uh, have the same symptom, but not as serious. So, in fact, it might be latent and subtle and not even be something that causes them to wake up. If you wear Zmax with the nasal sensor for the whole night, you might see that at certain points. You stop breathing and then you can see what happened after that and you can say okay did i wake up or not now let's assume like in the vast majority of people it's going to be a mild thing right so you had an oxygen desaturation that means your blood oxygen level for example went from 93 to 88 and then you turn around and the next epoch was still n2 or n3 so that shows you that you didn't actually wake up however uh, what you have to do is uh, wear it while you're not sleeping and try to hold your breath and wait until that number goes from 97, 90, whatever it is, to 88 and check how that feels. And you're going to be suffocating. Like it's gonna be really, really unpleasant. I think some people are not even gonna be able to hold their breath that long. Yeah. So that means that while you're trying to be peaceful and sleep like a baby, you're almost getting choked to death. That can't be good for you, right? So the application, since ZMAX also does stimulation, what we're testing from now is to intervene after you stop breathing, but before you have the desaturation, because it takes some time. You know, the oxygen is a good, uh, not the oxygen, the blood is a very good buffer for oxygen. So you can hold your breath for a while and you don't feel anything special, but it drops off all of a sudden after 15 seconds. That exactly mirrors the amount of oxygen that stores in the blood that's stored in the blood. That means that we have time to intercept uh, an interruption in your breathing in the airflow, and before you have the desaturation, before your blood oxygen actually has time to go down by that much, 
we can intervene with a sound or a vibration, something that allows you to snap out of it, so to speak, whether it is moving around, perhaps not even waking up, but anyway, something that stops it. And if we can stop it, then what we can do is for the people that have these problems, but not severe enough to wake up or to require hospital uh, treatment or to require CPAP machine or to actually stop these apneas from occurring. If we can do that, it may translate into an enormously improved uh, quality of sleep as perceived when the person wakes up. There's no way that removing, I tell you the number, uh, this particular person we were looking at, they had at least 20 to 30 different, and I have the file I can show you if, if we do video next time. They had at least 20 to 30 different episodes of nearly choking to death to 88 saturation throughout the night. Imagine that we remove that, how much better he's going to feel in the morning if his whole night wasn't spent suffocating. It's a huge problem. And there, there definitely there's loads and loads of room for improvements in not just diagnostics, but treatment as well. So um, this is really interesting. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation and we've got to bring this to a conclusion, unfortunately. But before you go, Kurtz, can I get your thoughts on where you think we might be in 10, 20, 30 years time with regards to sleep and its relationship with technology? Right. So most people underestimate the progress that we're going to make in biotech in the next 10 years. I remember when I first started using computers and I was 13, 14 years old, no, before like 11, from the age of 11. And if you ask the average person, what is a floppy disk? How do you format a disk? How do you use a computer mouse? They didn't know. So I remember an age in which this stuff just didn't exist. And today you've got uh, grannies on the bus discussing about whether 64 gigabyte is big enough or not. <laughs> that has been the revolution uh, in computing. But the next revolution is in biotech. And so the, and the state of biotech today, it's like a tsunami at the horizon. And it's like seeing those big computers, you know, as big as a room in the, in the, in the 70s and, and being able to forecast. So that means that you know, in 2018, we're going to have the iPhone. And, but but this, that's the same thing that's about to happen in biotech. So it's going to be one revolution after the other. Bang, bang, bang. I'm seeing life-changing things. And uh, it's, it, people are going to wonder where the hell did that come from because they didn't follow the research for the past 10, 20 years or 50 sometimes. But And these things are going to be so much more important than computing because they actually affect your life. They affect your well-being. So psychological interventions for depression, and of course, sleep being one of the most problematic things. Almost everybody's sleep deprived. We have the urgent need to sleep better with less hours. Of course, it would be better if we could sleep more hours better, but people are realistically not going to go for that. So we're going to try to sleep less hours better and get the same amount of, of restfulness. And so we're going to have pills. Right. Okay. I was going to say, give us some specific things that people can visualize. So, for example, there might be a biomimetic uh, bi uh, molecules that act in the same way as the hormones uh, that, that drive you to, to, to begin to fall asleep with. So the knowledge that we have to gain in these fields, which we are doing slowly, but as we get better and better screening methods even more, uh, is to figure out exactly what is the pathway. Because maybe the first iterations, you're going to have to take a cocktail of six things. But now when I'm saying cocktail, it sounds really bad, right? Because you think cocktail of drugs. 
progressing in biotech means that you can you can interface with the human body without all the all the side effects. So you would be able to have medicines that have no side effects, where you initially maybe you take a cocktail of six different things that recreate the same exact metabolic uh, processes that lead you to fall asleep naturally and sleep well. But then maybe the next iteration is not going to be six anymore because you found the one precursor that signals the whole system, like maybe with something in the retina that's triggered by blue light. And now we have a thing that can go there, some antagonist that can go there and block that and you take it at 6 p.m. And then by the time it's 9 p.m., your body thinks you've been in total darkness for three hours. Okay, so that kind of revolution, I think, is inevitable. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be tech, but perhaps tech has a big role in developing the biotech because we need better and better ways of being able to look inside the brain. And uh, we need ways of collecting more data from more people, which also means uh, keeping the technology very simple to use. So a bunch of different techs that used to be really invasive are now moving to be more uh, wearable. And so if before there was a PSG, uh, now there's ZMAX. Perhaps at some point in the future, it's going to be something that you put inside the contact lens. And then eventually it's going to be like one of the different modules that you put inside your stable brain implant library, where it's just going to download it to your PC while you're sleeping and it doesn't even need electrodes at that point. Wow. Fascinating. Well, you hear about all of that on your podcast when it happens. Yes, Exactly. Um, <laughs> thanks so much, Kurt. If people are interested in what ZMAX can do, whether they're an individual, whether they're affiliated to some research institution, you know, how do they get hold of ZMAX? Well, first of all, I think they're going to have a bunch of different questions about the electrodes, about the data, and they can get answers to all of that on my website, which is hypnodynecorp.com. Hypno, you know, like hypnosis, but it actually means sleep in Greece, in Greek. Uh, hypnodynecorp.com and um, there you can download the viewer for the ZMAX data and you can also also download sample data files. You have data files and PSG files from the same person the same night acquired concurrently that you can download so you can compare for yourself what does the ZMAX data look like versus what does the uh, PSG data look like and that you can download data files that include auto scoring so you can see the scoring quality and generally speaking, any question that you might have, including videos of the software, video tutorials for lucid dreaming and biofeedback, everything is on the site with links to YouTube. So hopefully that will answer all questions you might have. That's great. Thanks so much, Kurt. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button. Uh, Feel free to leave a review on iTunes and help spread the word with us about sleep and sleep health. You can hit us up on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and of course on the website sleepjunkies.com. My name's Jeff Mann and I hope to see you on the next one. Take care.